0: Hello, you're listening to Hear This Idea, a podcast showcasing new thinking in philosophy, the social sciences, and effective altruism. In this episode, we talked to Anna Alexandrova, a reader in philosophy of science at the University of Cambridge. As her website puts it, Anna studies how scientists navigate morally charged and complex phenomena and the role of formal tools such as models and indicators in their scholarly and public work. I in particular, much of Anna's work looks at the measurement of well-being. For instance, is there, or should there be, a single measure of overall well-being? Uh, can the science of well-being be objective, or does any plausible measure rely on values? Um, and what do philosophers mean by well-being in the first place? Uh, that is that is all roughly the topic of our first bit of conversation, which then, kind of turns into a discussion of technocratic versus more democratic ways of constructing measures of well-being. Uh, after that, we talk a bit about the use and abuse of formal models in economics. So, uh, a lot of how academic economics gets done involves taking a real-world thing which you want to explain, and then thinking up a fairly abstract, mathsy way to model what's going on, typically using. Uh, the so-called rational choice framework. Then the economist looks at what the model implies in terms of testable predictions and tests those predictions with real-world data. And if the model fits well enough, then it's said to explain the real-world thing. Now, Anna has argued that formal models have become overrated as tools for explanation in economics. In fact, she says sometimes they just don't explain at all. Instead, Anna says, the economics discipline would do well to pay more attention to historical explanations and qualitative evidence. So we ask Anna about all that and how economics might begin to open up to these other methods. And then on a similar vein, we finish up by talking about Anna's own subject, philosophy of science, and what its relationship should be with the sciences. Uh, So should it just be asking big profound questions about you know the scientific method or should it be wading into conversations about uh, institutions and norms and actual scientific practice by which I mean conversations with actual scientists and I think Anna has a really interesting perspective on that okay without further ado here's the episode
1: thank you so I'm Anna Alexandrova. I'm now a reader in philosophy of science at Cambridge University and I have arrived um, uh, to this point via a very roundabout route, growing up in Soviet Union just as it was collapsing, and then uh, um, studying in uh, a whole lot of different uh, places before ending up uh, for a PhD in the University of California, San Diego. And the reason why I do philosophy of social science, when I look back at it, it's got to have something to do with growing up in the collapsing empire, because uh, the fundamental experience of a teenager in the 90s is uh, this enormous uncertainty, social uncertainty about where we're going, what we're doing, and who knows what to do. And the experience of watching a lot of uh, talking heads on TV and experts talking about, uh, you know, we need to open the economy, or no, we need to go back to the glory of the Soviet Union, or no, we need to do this, or we need to do that, and girls should be like that, and boys should be like that, and sort of being bombarded by uh, this enormous variety of lives you could live and ways in which you could organize society. So by the time I just saw the name of a discipline, uh, the first time I saw it, I think, was um, when I researched uh, master's degrees at LSE, philosophy of social science. The combina- I had no idea what that's about, but the combination just blew me away. I can do that. Um, it felt right, and when... By the time I arrived to London School of Economics uh, in '98 to do a master's in this discipline, I realized that it was about that big meta question about who gets to say that they know about how to live and how to organize a society. And um, is there a right or wrong there? Is there a prospect for a scientific approach to it? That hit the spot and, you know, looking back now, um, that's almost 25 years ago, it doesn't seem like I really got interested in anything other than that fundamental question and everything I did. uh, After that, every single project I have pursued has been a project about uh, what is knowledge of society and who gets to do it.
0: What a fantastic answer. I think in general, it's easy to kind of overconnect, you know, autobiography to your interests nowadays. But in this instance, it does seem right. And hearing that it does make me think that I've grown up and I guess, Lukey, you've grown up in a period, I guess, of kind of relative stability, where it's easy to be lulled into the sense that, you know, there are adults in the room and they've got things more or less figured out. And so what's left to do is just kind of Policy tweaks at the margin, right? The the range of like reasonable options is very narrow.
1: Adults in the room is a really interesting thought. Um, just philosophically, think about it, Finn. And do you want? How? What do you want to have the adults in the room for? Um, I at this point, I'm very much an adult in the room for my students and my uh, uh, children, and uh, it's an enormous responsibility and sort of the weight I feel of it every day, and. Uh, I I can be an adult in the room for their emotional support and for their help, but I think I I think it's hard to be an adult in the room for really big fundamental choices about uh, how to live and uh, um, where a community or a society should go. So I think I'd like to re- retain forever a, like a child in the room. <laughs> approach towards uh, the really big social and moral questions
2: yeah and I think it's also the title right of, of Varoufakis's uh kind of biography when he was uh, like negotiating with the European Union right kind of adults in the room and he pointed out I think throughout kind of that there's also uh uh, something that comes with it of like not being able to kind of question authority and stuff, right? And just because people are senior and have had lots of experiences, um, it's also easy to kind of fall into existing structures and, and not be able to question the status quo and just kind of accepting it. And that kind of like childlike curiosity or willingness to to ask challenging questions as well uh, is is really important.
1: Agreed. Let's all forever remain open minded about what counts as an adult in the room. and what we
0: expect from them especially just to go down this rabbit hole even further um, <laughs> when you're talking about social sciences and you hear the word science especially when they have this kind of economicsy flavor when there's lots of numbers flying around it's easy to get the impression that people have managed to transform questions about you know how we ought to live or how we ought to arrange communities into scientific questions on a par with other sciences um, and then it's like, oh, that's quite a comforting impression. Um, but of course, it's not true, right? There's kind of, you can't, you can't ever close the gap like that. Uh, okay, let's talk about well-being. So this is has been a focus of your research and writing. And we'll talk about what you have to say, especially. But let's just begin with terminology. Well-being means a lot of things. I know a lot of people think of wellness and they think of yoga <laughs> and um, spa music, but in the context of philosophy, what is well-being kind of taken to mean, just in the most general terms, so we're on the same page?
1: I really like your starting point, Finn. Uh, Let's recognise that the term well-being gets used by very many different people in many different circumstances, and they will hear different things um, when pronouncing it. And I think that is uh, a big deal Uh, and should be a starting point of any discussion, that it is one of those uh, vague concepts that has had a place in many different spheres of life. Um, You know, well, um, Tolstoy talks about how to live. He talks about well-being without using a term. When economists talk about um, what to maximize, they talk about welfare using sometimes the term well-being. To uh, when um, life coaches talk about you know helping people find themselves, they're talking about um, something akin to that. And bring coming to philosophy, I think it is really important to recognize kind of the parochialism of the question that we are you know, when a philosopher is asked to define well-being, they will be talking within um, this specific context, which is uh, um, doing ethics and meta-ethics in the analytic tradition in uh, uh, 20th and 21st century. And this is the point at which the concept of well-being gets identified with a kind of value that is not moral value, not aesthetic value, not political value. It it gets identified with a prudential value, the value that is good for someone. It is a nice circumscribing move that philosophers uh, make, which is often completely unrecognizable to others. And it was unrecognizable in uh, early modern periods and the classical period philosophy where you talk about what's good and what's good, right? You don't talk about different kinds of uh, good. The moral good is distinct from prudential good. But um, when we arrive to um, you know, f- philosophy at this point in uh, history, yes, it has the term well-being has been defined as a kind of value that is distinct from moral uh, value and a value that is that attaches to a a person specifically. So then we begin to build a theory of that value. And this theory is usually, uh, we've already taken this very individualist focus, right? What is good for a person? And we try to do it at the most abstract level. And this person has to be just a person not someone embedded in the context, in the culture, in the history. We try to come up with a theory at the most abstract level that would work for everyone. So the key to recognize, uh, I think, here is that um, the philosophical theorizing about well-being is a very peculiar exercise. And uh, the big question for me is always being how do you connect that peculiar exercise to... The practice.
0: Yeah, interesting. Which we'll talk about, um, I'm sure. But just to say that back to make sure I'm getting it. So, when we talk about someone's well-being, we're talking about something like how well their life is going, all things considered. But crucially, we mean how well their life is going for them, right? So that's what kind of prudential is meaning here. And then you made this point that this is like such an abstract. Um, idea we're starting off with right you almost couldn't get more um, all-encompassing than the kind of philosopher's notion of well-being it's not even relative to any kind of context right so when we talk about well-being we're not yet talking about well-being for a certain kind of person like a child or an adult or something we just mean for any person how well their life is going right so um, I guess the thing that's clear here is that This is a very early starting point. We can't do much with it when it comes to making decisions or forming policy or something. And I guess you can work your way up through more contextualized and concrete theories. And something else you're doing is, if you're interested in actually making, for instance, policy decisions based on your theory of well-being, you also want a way of measuring it or finding out how um, well-off or worse-off people are um, and so maybe could you say something about, you know, in practice, how does a well-being measure get made? So how do we go from the kind of abstract philosophizing to the you know surveys that get handed out or whatever else it is?
1: Great question. So the first thing to recognize is um, for well-being to become an object of science, it needs to make a trip into another discipline <laughs> right. so it is very um, familiar point from history of science that as an object travels from you know one field to another it uh, loses something it gains something so that big all-encompassing all things considered good for a person concept of well-being when it needs to be operationalized uh, by uh, scientists it will become um, simpler. It will become uh, more limited, and it will be represented uh, by an indicator. So, it is extremely unlikely to have direct measures of uh, well-being. I suppose it depends, uh, you know, w- what theory of well-being you will adopt. But uh, scientists will inevitably make a decision about. What well-being what counts as well-being for their purposes so what happened in the uh, uh, throughout 20th centuries that different disciplines have appropriated uh, the concept of well-being and they have devised uh, different sets of indicators around surrounding them so um, you know economists adopt the concepts uh, of well-being and say what's the closest thing that we've got in our theory that's to do with well-being well it's the preferences and then so that satisfying the preferences what's the best thing that we've got um, measuring that behavior Uh, well what kind of behavior spending behavior you know and that's how um, uh, consumption and uh, income become indicators of well-being then come uh, you know, uh, the rise of social indicators research and the sociologists and development scholars who want to represent this wider quality of life, uh, who are often working on development projects. Um, so so that's kind of the mid-20th century uh, post-colonial context. So they construct a bunch of multidimensional indicators. Well, you know, child mortality, uh, access to vaccinations, in uh, They've got their own. And then the interesting thing that happens in the um, end of uh, 20th century, is sort of the 80s and 90s, is well-being becomes an object of psychological sciences. And psychologists, they have their tools for measuring um, uh, already a lot of psychological attributes, right? Uh, the psychometrics is already a science, and, you know, we measure personality traits and uh, attitudes and uh, things like that. So that whole machinery then gets to uh, define well-being anew and it gets defined either as a mental state that gives an overall evaluation of life, so that becomes life satisfaction, or else um, mental states uh, you know that at a time gives a certain... Um, the the feel right the, the affected state and so that becomes the more hedonic measures of um, uh, well being and then you know if we then take it further and uh, you know the eager uh, policymaker from the nineties and early knots walks in and says we're going to fix the problems of politics by giving a neutral um, uh, basis for policy Um, and that's going to be our evidence-based policy, we're going to need the measure of well-being, right? And which of these many options does this policymaker pick out of? You know, historically, there's been so many. And uh, a big free-for-all happens, you know, uh, uh, different scientists sort of Trying to represent themselves as experts of well-being, well, I've got one, you know, I've got one, I've got a measure, I've got a measure, and then what ends up happening is some kind of a uh, you know, complex and interesting outcome, uh, such that you know now Office of National Statistics in the UK collects uh, um, a whole load of uh, you know whole fantastically interesting diverse dashboard of indicators. Uh, That's the short answer to your question.
2: Yeah, no, it sounds good. I'm curious as well. um, So you've mentioned all of these range of objective measures, which I'm sure we'll get into more uh, in a little bit. But I'm curious as well, has there been much progress into just kind of embracing the subjectiveness and just really looking at people's self-reported kind of well-being or or happiness as well? Is there much credence like in the policy space that gets given to, to those kinds of approaches?
1: Uh, enormous amount of credence and uh, uh finn probably has something to say about that uh, the uh, these psychologists that i've mentioned have spent a lot of time um, and a lot of their efforts um, trying to show that we have got valid measures of uh, those uh, mental states and uh, those mental states are what matters so they plug in a philosophical argument uh, for them and the su- su- subjective uh, understanding of well-being and they say you know we this is the stuff that on which we can collect data and moreover uh, some of uh, some of this data can be plugged in uh, into very conventional econometrics uh, such that you'd be able to you know add that be air rating of life satisfaction and that that rating is something you can plug in into Normal uh, cost-benefit or cost-efficiency analysis, and then uh, uh, basically there isn't much of a much of a change that's needed to your normal way of operating. And there is this uh, alliance then between a psychologist and a an economist um, to um, provide the new basis for policy. So in many ways. Uh, um yes, uh, Luca, there, have, there has been progress in the sense that psychologists have been able to say, you know, well, what we've got is what we need.
0: Do you want to just tell the story of how, how we got here in the first place? Because it does seem right that there is a lot more interest in these subjective measures of well-being in policy now than even, I don't know, five or 10 years ago. So can you put your finger on anything that, that changed?
1: Great. Yes, I can tell you first. Let's start with the um, the origin story that uh, well being researchers themselves uh, tell. But, you know, origin stories are usually myths. Uh, so let's just keep that in mind. Um, so here is the myth that comes out of the 90s and uh, 80s and early 90s. Uh, conventional economics relies on uh, uh, these cold, uh, um, brutal numbers of GDP and consumption. Um, the only reason why they've adopted these numbers is because they believe people maximize uh, their utility uh, and the, because they adopt a preference, satisfaction, account of well-being. We now know, we who, the psychologists who have discovered failures of uh, rational choice theory, that that is not true. Mm. And therefore, we need a new basis for, uh, for policy. So hence, all these uh, uh, grand pronouncements that you hear, let us go beyond money, let us uh, do a policy that really matters to people. It relies very much on the argument that um, traditional economics messed up in such and such ways. Right. And... Uh, While some economists have fought against that, others have uh, embraced it and uh, kind of rolled with it. Um, The reason why it is a myth in many ways is because, uh, well, uh, you know, consumption surveys uh, and and, and GDP surveys studies have often have been uh, misrepresented through all of this as being incredibly unsophisticated and, uh, and you know, caring only about uh, uh, money and things like that. And economists had very many different reasons not to measure happiness uh, directly. Um, and those reasons were not just prejudices. So you will hear nowadays, a lot of economists saying, well, hold on the whole point of uh uh, respecting people's priorities is uh, that we get them to weigh you know how important uh, experiences to you know to them versus other things they're getting right so that's the the great thing about uh, the preference framework is that it allows you to trade off some goods against others and that's the whole point of an indifference curve right it's an amazing invention so, therefore you know when we say you know for, that there has been a great interest for um so subjective well-being and its role in policy uh, let's just not forget that well it's different people vying for influence ultimately right so uh and uh you know for some time psychologists were in a good uh, place vying for that influence and uh, I think it is, there's a constant struggle going on there. So, you know, I, there isn't much of an appetite for wellbeing policy. Um, you know, as soon as um, Brexit referendum happens, right, there was, a, you know, Cameron used to talk the talk and then, and then it's completely disappeared off the agenda. So I think it's still kind of up for grabs uh, where it's going to go let's just not forget that there isn't really here a single uh, agenda. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. There are many uh, different traditions that keep on bumping into each other. Um, So, uh, And whichever of them comes out, it's not because uh, they necessarily have the truest and the best representation of well-being, but rather, you know, well, for normal political reasons.
0: Yeah, okay. Well, maybe I can say something, I don't know, in favor of that myth, because it may be a myth, but it's quite an optimistic one, right? So, what's the story? Like you said, it's roughly that almost all policy where it's relevant is formed by economic indicators, which are kind of understood as proxies for well being, but really what we're measuring is consumption, which is going to track well being a bit, but isn't it just common sense that? consumption isn't the same thing as well-being you know a country and an individual can make an awful lot of money and consume an awful lot and be much worse off than some counterpart that is just happier or more contented but not consuming quite so much and then you have this kind of like very refreshingly hard-nosed camp uh which is associated with people like richard layard who just say look in order to do anything useful we need to roll all these different indicators of well-being into a more or less a single number. And that number is going to stand for something like people's life satisfaction, right? How happy they say they are, or how happy with their life they say they are. And there's something to that, right? So it means you can compare the cost efficiency across different policies and different kind of big spending schemes. And also there's quite a nice advantage in that you can avoid being misled by kind of tempting narratives right because you've got the numbers in front of you and one has made people happier and one hasn't so <laughs> i guess the question is something like what could go wrong there what's the the skeptical response to that kind of inspiring story
1: uh thank you you you've given it a really uh, good run and i think what is even more inspiring uh, there is uh, um in that story is an attempt to also give a democratic justification for this, that uh, ultimately life satisfaction ratings will provide to us a summary of people's priorities. And then uh, it's uh, uh, once we've got a summary of that priorities, then we just have to go ahead and uh, do the best we can, given the public money that we have uh, and spend them in, in the way that best meets people's priorities. Who could possibly be against that? Who could possibly be against that? Well, um, just to rewind back to your um, ethics 101 um, objection for, to consequentialism from Bernard Williams, uh, consequentialism regards uh, humans as receptacles for utility and not as agents of their life. And the well-being policy that is based on that does well-being at people, uh, not with people, right? Uh, That is a phrase um, very much that I've been discussing with uh, my colleague, uh, Diane Coyle, who I take it you've interviewed as well. Uh, We, in general, are interested uh, in the fact that well-being policy... Uh, as proposed by uh, Professor Layard and his colleagues, has this uh, vision of um, the 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 expert scientists um, giving providing valid measures and uh, uh, figuring out what causes um, well-being, um, and then the policymaker and who wants to maximize it, and then sort of this one person, what the expert passes on the knowledge to the policymaker, policymaker figures out how to implement it. And there isn't really here any recognition of um, uh, the politics of the situation. The politics of the situation is that, your voice has been reduced uh, to to a number uh, of the, on the rating, right? There is a there is a claim that life satisfaction measures are uh, most democratic because uh, they let people weigh the goods that are important for them. But um, uh, well, there is more to to being democratic and to being respectful, and uh, and that is uh, you know to uh, ask people um, uh, how do they understand their well-being, right? Life satisfaction is a summary of how you think you're doing. It is not uh, a representation of what you think matters. So I, for instance, would be very worried if my uh, local council was trying to maximize my life satisfaction instead of um, doing things that... My community, in a conversation as a whole, decides counts like bicycle lines, lanes, and uh, um, early childhood intervention and support of um, the undeserved. So, I, you know, life satisfaction, uh, famously, is you know have, provides uh, really embarrassing uh, uh, indicators for education, like, you know, gosh, being around, being around educating people is bad for your life satisfaction. (laughs) And uh, being around, uh, and yeah, there there are all sorts of uh, uh, details like that, that, you know, I think uh, need to be subject to democratic controls, not to technocratic controls. So one thing that we're working with now, Um, in the Bennett Institute for Public Policy with my um, uh, colleagues like uh, Diane Coyle and Mark Fabian, is we're trying to figure out what would it mean for wellbeing policy to be not technocratic, but uh, properly uh, responsive uh, to people's priorities. And uh, I think we would need to get beyond that model of the, 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 the expert and the policymaker figuring out uh, what to do. I think we're going to need to inject uh, a proper, normal kind of politics into it. Um, if you are going to have a measure of well-being that represents your community, you better talk through this measure with your community and your, your community, but you you better co-produce it or co-construct it. I can tell you about a, a project we are doing at the moment, uh, trying to develop a measure of uh, thriving for a uh, Bristol poverty, a Bristol-based poverty charity called Turn to Us, um, that tried to help people uh, in uh, grave financial difficulty. Uh, they you know so so I, I don't think they should be using life satisfaction to decide where their money goes. I, I think they need to uh, uh understand uh better the priorities and the concerns of their uh stakeholders. And I think that is uh, overall a better model for wellbeing policy than the technocratic one.
0: Yeah, what a fantastic answer. Can I maybe try just kind of summarising what you said just to make sure I'm not missing it because there was so much there. So maybe it's something like this on this kind of technocratic model, right, where you have one big numerical measure of well-being. And that measure is life satisfaction. Right. So concretely you're with actually not much extra detail, you're asking people how well they think their life is going, all things considered, you know, out of ten. And then you're aggregating those numbers. And the picture is you have your your kind of whitehall technocrats, they get these surveys back, they'll come up with policy, and then you want to figure out how to drive those numbers up, right? The images of throwing well-being at people as much as you can. And in that sense, you can kind of draw a link between this way of doing policy with a kind of criticism of, kind of consequentialist-flavoured frameworks in general, which is that they treat people too much as receptacles for well-being rather than as agents who get to make decisions for themselves and you want to facilitate a kind of environment where people can make decisions for themselves and for their kind of various communities they're part of and life satisfaction is a useful bit of evidence to feed into that but it's going to involve much more right so it's kind of reductive in that sense um, so I guess first of all is to check that that is roughly right
1: that's a great story. I really appreciate it.
0: Fantastic. And then now I feel really kind of, yeah, I feel like sticking up for, for the grads yes. because they, not enough people stick up for them, I feel. Um, so yeah, what could you say? Maybe the claim is like a marginal one, right? Like the way things are done right now at the margin, probably we could do with paying much more attention to these kind of numerical indicators as like a first step. And you know, maybe one reason you could raise for that is just that, existing policies are just so suboptimal, they're doing so poorly with respect to how well we could do in terms of people's well-being, um, that it's almost worth just deferring those worries until we've sorted those things out, right? So I remember Richard Layard came and gave a talk and he gave some examples of cognitive behavioural therapy, right? Turns out it it's fairly inexpensive, it works really well, um, why aren't we investing more in this or in community centers or something relative to like HS2. And, okay, that's a decision which might get made without consulting the communities who would benefit from it, but maybe that's okay. And then we can worry about involving more stakeholders in the future. Does that make sense? And does that sound kind of plausible?
1: Uh, Thank you. It makes sense. And it's uh, an admirable vision. It's just the vision once realized has Job centers insisting on people doing cognitive behavioral therapy uh, uh, instead of um, giving them benefits. Uh, the the overall vision of a well-being policy uh, is one thing. The its implementation in an environment of uh, um, you know, austerity and uh, the demise of. Uh, a welfare state and a great inequality between uh, regions of this country uh, means that it gets plugged in into existing practices in uh, much more depressing ways than the ideal shows up, right? Such that you end up saying that, well, uh, you know, tough luck, your housing is so rubbish and tough luck that your children aren't getting a good education at school. Do some cognitive behavioral therapy to feel better. I mean, that's that's the, that's the overall um, problem, right? We gonna, and you know, this is this is. I say that with full respect and admiration of my economist colleagues who try to come up with this. Uh, indicators besides uh you know i'm very much in favor of numerical indicators of um uh lots of things i mean i think they hold politicians into account and they are um uh, they're defensible both on epistemic grounds and on political grounds uh i just think that um um, there is this temptation to plug in the life satisfaction as the the only indicator, and also to plug it in at the sides, you know, where, you know, wherever we can, um, instead of um, you know recognizing uh, the need for deeper reform.
2: I find that really interesting, actually, I think that kind of distinction between what goal uh, you're kind of aiming for and the actual implementation mechanism. That wasn't really something I had uh, in my mind really before. And I think it's it's worth really contemplating about. And I, I mean, I think you can kind of make points that might not really be about the well-being topic itself, about what kind of those implementation things look like where if you want to have something democratic and you want to get all stakeholders involved that might involve lots of stakeholders that wouldn't even you know count in a kind of normal democracy i mean we've mentioned on, on previous podcasts the role of future generations but also people in other countries um who who don't get involved in uh, the current decision making process but even in like let's say more more local kind of democratic decisions either and i i think that's something really interesting um something else i kind of wanted to ask about as well which i think finn got a little bit at with the cognitive behavioral therapy is something i saw in like the foreign aid literature which is this idea of like mental health interventions in developing countries which caused some kind of small controversy in of itself but i feel kind of fits into this topic where it's kind of talking about okay well if our goal is to help people's well-being as opposed to you know growing an economy or or, or, or something else, then one very effective way to do that might be to try and tackle well-being um, directly and to just give mental support to people who are in incredibly challenging and, and difficult circumstances and to try and help and alleviate some of the, the mental suffering that that causes. But that also raises interesting questions as well, if that is kind of almost a deflection of some sort, right, where you're kind of addressing the symptoms of a system that induces suffering. And you're just, yeah, you're just treating the symptoms as opposed to the actual causes and the inequality and and the things that really um, cause people to have those symptoms in the first place. Do you have any thoughts about that and how to kind of square, I guess, kind of treating maybe the, the more surface level stuff with like the, the deeper underlying problems? Mm-hmm.
1: Thank you. That is a lovely way of putting it. Let's not try let's not be too extreme on either end so Mm. you know on the the one end, the extreme is you know i don't care um how the world is i'll just do put on little patches on here and there to relieve suffering as i can so that's the vision of kind of the effective altruist framework and uh, i think more generally um also of well-being policies you know and wherever it is i can that i can use public money to um release release suffering a little bit is fine um fine by me that's one extreme the other extreme is uh no this is all sort of just um patches what we need is deep structural change revolution and uh um, you are relieving people' anger, people's anger and misery, when we should be trying to marshal that misery for yeah. um, um, uh, deep reform and all that. I, I see these two extremes playing out in debates. I'd be, I'd love to hear where you think is the, the, the good middle. My worry is that you know, on the, the revolutionary extreme, you know, we need structural change, we don't need well being policy. Um, well, just, uh, you know, forgets the fact that look, we've got one life to live. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, it'd be nice to live it. Um, it'd be nice to enjoy it a little bit. Right. And it'd be nice um, to well, sometimes you do need a patch, right? Sometimes all you need is a patch, right? Um you know in the misery of a lockdown uh, you know stuck with uh, at home with children in winter n- not being able to do anything all i could all i needed were patches just just to get through that right there was no question about deep structural change to relieve you know inequality of labor in my household or something like that
2: yeah that yeah
1: yeah crazy right um uh on the other hand, um uh you you don't wanna go to, to the other. So I think it's a really, really tough place to work to walk, you know, two big rocks that you need to trail mm. between. I'd love to hear whether you think there is a solution.
2: Yeah, I mean I, I think I personally don't really think I have, like, a solution to this problem. I mean, it clearly is, like, very big. I mean, there are definitely different ways I think about, like, what I can do personally and, like, what I think should happen, right? And maybe there's a difference between how I try to guide, like, my own personal actions as opposed to how I think bigger actors, um, like government, should influence decisions. And then, hence, when I look at how I can influence government in turn, that might change how... I think it should behave if if that kind of makes any sense, I' don't realize it's kind of a bit mumbly jumbly. but for example, I don't think that like mental health services in developing countries is like a bad thing to try out, but I would be concerned if that ends up being what the UK government spends its entire aid budget on, right for example like I, I think it's it's things like that. I as an individual I think see value in doing that and I see the value in those organizations existing, but I'd be worried if they get to a point where they really dominate the conversation and then all the like more structural
0: things get lost but yeah one of kind of evasive non-answer to give is that very often there isn't attention so like the cbt example in a developing country okay it's good on straightforward measures of subjective well-being you know it means people are having a really rough time have less of a rough time but also it means that there are hopefully lasting changes where you can just become a more productive member of your community But let's ask a question, which is um, whether well-being, just in theory, is the kind of thing that can be represented by one measure or number or construct. Um, And I know that you have argued that maybe we should be thinking more about using so-called mid-level or contextual theories of well-being. Can you just say something about what that means?
1: So let's just think again, uh, my city council, Um, deciding to improve people's uh, uh, well-being of uh, people in Cambridge. Um, What should they be doing? I think what they should be doing is very different from what my therapist should be doing or my best, my close friend should be doing or, um, you know, a a development economist who is in charge of uh, overall region should be doing. In, here's the simple thing, um, simple thought. The benefactor with concern for me as a person, say uh, my rabbi or my uh, a really close friend, uh, she knows my priorities and the distinct challenges that I face. She knows that, um, uh, you know, I have this... Uh, Um, I have this problem of uh, not being able to say no, or I have a problem of not knowing uh, how to apportion my responsibilities and starting projects and not finishing them. So genuinely, I mean, she knows my uh, predicament very well, right? And uh, talking about well-being with her should be a very different exercise I'm talking about well-being to my city council. Right? My city council should be in charge not of my well-being as a person, as an individual. Rather, they should be in charge of citizen well-being. Right, And citizen well-being is not just an addition right, of all the individual well-beings. Rather, citizen well-being is a different notion. It is um, a summary of our priorities as citizens of cambridge to whatever preserve you know walkability of our city etc cetera, etc cetera. so it's just two completely different notions so uh, when when i talk about uh, need, us needing mid-level theories of well-being i talk about precisely that uh, they need to identify the context in which you are uh, working and then um build a theory of well-being for each of that context. And, um, you know, measures of subjective well-being may well be, have a place in uh, a given mid-level theory. But we first have to start with recognition that, uh, you know, we're talking about well-being qua what? Qua individual? No, qua citizen? Qua new mom? Qua, um, uh, et etc. et cetera. So these are the um these are the issues that I think um, line up naturally with the rejection of technocratic uh, approach to well-being right you um, if you dis- if you if you think that uh, mid-level theories of well-being is uh, is what we need to do, then you're gonna want to set up a political process to do them responsibly. So, the idea of mid-level theory is the idea that uh, when we're asking about well-being, we should be very clear about the context in which we're asking it and what we're going to do about it. And once we have specified the context, we we should uh, set up a very responsible and inclusive process for filling out the, the, this notion of well-being.
2: Yeah, so I was going to ask... Um, kind of a question about how this might look in practice, because I think i 'm very aware that you know decisions that um you know everywhere from council to national government uh the the decisions that these institutions need to make are often really really hard and there is like a genuine trade-off where some people will kind of be left off very frustrated and and very angry and that might hurt some people's you know well-being very objectively um you know for the greater good of some other people's well-being and there is like some i guess kind of concern i might have where that kind of deliberation or that kind of more democracy minded idea just might not be able to make those hard decisions that in the same way that a technocratic process can make so maybe to give like a a clearer example one thing i was that kind of popped in my mind here was like the not in my backyard kind of movement i don't know if this kind of rings a bell but there is like a clear kind of signal at least you would say from the market and from prices that as house prices go up there's clearly a consumer preference demand for more housing but then people actually often bring in what is essentially kind of a well-being argument that you can't build houses here because this hurts me in all of these indirect ways and uh you know kind of hits the social capital of my local community or you know think of um many of these indirect effects it can have and that can be a real obstacle right so what i think outsiders would say seems like a pretty clear solution of kind of building more affordable low-income housing and there is this this kind of concern that i'd be interested to kind of hear your perspective on of where this kind of trade-off happens um in this like more deliberative process or how um yeah yeah um well-being can kind of square off with those with more power and those those with less power is precisely in those kinds of institutions that that end up making those decisions
1: that's a great uh, way of emphasizing the difficulty. This is the point at which uh, if you are interested in uh, uh, well-being policy or effective altruism or anything like that, you kind of inevitably get sucked into a vision of politics, even if you didn't mm. mean to. So uh, I, I take on board um, you know, both the impracticality and the difficulty in the selfishness and the frustrated, fr- frustrating nature of uh, uh, local democratic exercises. Uh, that is uh, absolutely true. But when you say it is easier to solve this problem technocratically, what you mean by easier is just that the technocratic approach will tell us what to do and we can go ahead and do it. But it's not easier in a uh, long term, right? In the long mm. term... We will, we 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 are seeing the effect of distrust of experts, right? We're seeing the loss of um, uh, uh, yeah the loss of trust in science and the loss of uh, the increasing alienation of um, uh, a public from uh, uh, yeah from, from from different forms of expertise, whether it's scientists or um, you know, social workers, or policy makers, or think tank uh, workers—we uh, don't want that, right? And the the uh, the re- the, re- the reason why this alienation is not just, you know, a frustrating fact to be patched, but is to be expected, is because uh, public policy is uh, filled, and um, and social science is filled with thick concepts, right? Concepts that are. Um, uh, partly judging, par- partly describing like you know, progress, well-being, resilience, frailty, um, things like that. And that uh, because they are partly value latent, unless you think you are an expert on values, right? you're going to need to um, recognize that, uh, uh, that you're going to have to be in- inclusive. Right, in uh, in in setting those problems. So the price that you pay for the uh, difficult for, for for the for the ease of the technocratic approach is that down the line you lose the um you you, you lose the trust and the take up of your community, and then you have this uh, you know much more uncomfortable and much harsher politics that we're facing at the moment, like politics that, uh, uh, seem to, you know, lead to dramatic polarization. Uh, we, we are forever facing a tension between, uh, um, yeah, local involvement on the one hand and, uh, uh, wanting to do the right thing on the other hand, all things considered. And, uh, um, it is, uh, I mean, it is, there is no single resolution of it, uh, is my view, right? And I do very much hope that uh, plenty of uh, uh, good, uh, genuine, thorough expertise that is in, informed by local um, concerns can uh, nevertheless make uh, a dent because it would be, uh, I do believe ultimately that, um there, there is such a thing as expertise about the social, and uh, therefore there is expertise about values because uh, the social is laden mm. So I, I do passionately uh, believe in uh, social science and in its uh, power and its, in its responsibility. Um, it probably just needs to be more spread out and more connected.
0: Okay, let's talk a bit about something else you've written about, which is the role of formal models in social science. Um, and one way to start talking about this is to bring up a paper you co-wrote about the application of a particular model to explain truces in World War I trench warfare. Um, so maybe could you say something about what that paper was trying to do, and also whether you think it succeeded and why.
1: One of the most uh, fascinating facts about contemporary uh, economics is the importance of um, models that are recognisable and uh, very simple and can be transported to different situations. And there is no better example of that than the prisoner's dilemma. You know, it's a set piece. It is. Uh, some some people have called it the E. coli of social science. That means it uh, appears in very many different places, and uh, there is a kind of, I think, even a standard trope. You know, it's this is a prisoner's dilemma. Pandemic is a prisoner's dilemma, and. Uh, the, you know, the, the price war between supermarkets is a prisoner's dilemma. Uh, yuppies on the dating market is a prisoner's dilemma. Uh, so uh, that kind of, or sometimes it's not prisoner's dilemma. Sometimes it's, it's some other um, non-cooperative uh, uh, game. Sometimes it's some coordination game. Uh, there, is a, there is a big library of that. And I'm not, uh, you know, some people are worried about, you know, you, know, you think it's a prisoner's dilemma no in fact it's the stack hand hunt game that's that's not what I'm worried about I think I'm worried about more generally this vision of uh, social science where we prize the uh, gener- generality over the specificity So um, we think that um, that the best way to understand the social world is to um, make a library, of uh, abstract uh, models that then can be applied in uh, different places, and we shall thereby uh, find the unifying logic of social s- social life, and we will be able to provide uh, solid social explanations uh, for that. Perhaps in similar way as I'm skeptical about a single theory of uh, well-being. I'm skeptical about the ability of uh, uh, models to do as much as uh, the investment of them betrays uh, the trust to do. So, like, given that uh, uh, to become an economist at this point is, uh, you know, it's very good. You have to also be a modeler. I and mean, it's the definition of, of economics is to learn to be a modeler. Um, rather than, uh, for instance, learn to be a surveyor, or learn to be an ethnographer, or learn to be a um, you know a whole load of empirical skills that say you know a biologist needs to get. I think economics for a long time has overinvested in a certain particular uh, 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 mode of knowledge. There is nothing is you know, inherently wrong and, uh, um, you know, completely hopeless about this form of knowledge. No, the model-based uh, science is uh, completely, uh, uh, you know, normal and recognizable through history of science. Um, and I just think that the best way to understand a social world is to do as much as possible in using as many different methods as possible. And this was the motivation behind writing this paper. uh, When uh, we uh, try to pin people down, say, well, okay, you're saying this situation is a prisoner's dilemma. Can we dig deeper? Can you show me that the structure of the game is actually replicated in the situation as you're saying it? You try to scratch the surface and very quickly this falls off, right? The, um, uh, it turns out that the situation is much more complex it turns out that the situation that the prisoner's dilemma doesn't actually make correct prediction and i think uh, the uh, truce in uh, uh, trenches of world war one um, is a good example of the failure of the uh, Prisoner's dilemma you know with infinite horizon with tit-for tat strategy i mean it's just uh, um, it was represented still and in, in the textbooks as the, the big empirical success of uh, uh, prisoner's dilemma, and it very much is not. But the message is wider. I think a healthy uh, social science and a healthy economics in particular is an economics that uh, spread its, spreads its methodological bets. And I think it's very much happening in economics. I think uh, economics is uh, uh, changing very fast. Uh, as we speak, uh, in terms of the priorities and the the methods that are being taught um, and all things considered, I'm quite optimistic about the changes.
2: Yeah, so I guess just to try and understand here what you were saying. So I'm just curious, is this mostly a critique then against misapplication of certain terms or certain theories when they get just... Uh, you know, oh, people just say this is the prisoner's dilemmas, but they don't actually do the actual studies or uh, a rigorous enough investigation to to check this? Um, Or is it that they shouldn't even be using game theoretic frameworks to begin with to analyse the situation, or at least not just game theoretic things? Um, Where where do you kind of fall on that then? This is a
1: very helpful distinction, uh, Luca, thank you. So Um, the distinction is between um, uh, should you be investing in better application of models or should you be investing in uh, uh, less model building so I I do I would like to say both so if you're going to be if you're going to say that what's so amazing about uh, uh, you know famous economic models like you know market for lemons or prisoner's dilemma or any one of these is their amazing explanatory power then you better roll up your sleeves and show that it does have the, that amazing explanatory power um and you do that empirically so this is a point against what's been known as the casual empiricism that you encounter in among economic theorists uh, sometimes that well yeah i've got a you know i've got a super clever model it looks lovely like you know, uh, Uh, market for lemons for instance it can explain why uh you get uh, uh swindled by the used car dealer uh no you need to do more if you want to grant the explanation uh but the second point is also true that you know if uh your goal and if your uh big priority for your science is uh solid, empirically grounded causal explanations of a significant phenomena, then the best thing to do is not um, over-invest in one mode of investigating those phenomena. So I'm here speaking against uh, this uh, traditional vision that economics is defined by certain methods such that if you don't do um, optimization uh, modeling, for instance, you are not doing economics, you're doing something else. And so I think that's that, that's a mistake. I think economics should be defined by a range of significant phenomena that we want to understand. And then uh, uh, economics should invest uh, in a range of different uh, methodologies that, uh, that allow us to tackle those phenomena. So it's, it's both of those things you said.
2: Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, this is just kind of like a small tangent point, but it reminds me a bit of like a general debate in kind of heterodox economics as well. And I think we explored it in in one of our episodes, but there's almost like two ways to kind of diversify the debate, right? And one is like for economics to just become a lot more narrow, actually, and to just really focus on models and then to just open up, I guess, space for other ways. And then the the other way would be to actually make economics itself more diverse, And those are like two different uh, approaches, one in like making economics much more theory based, much more maths based. And uh, then just making sure that we have more uh, anthropologists or sociologists and other kind of social sciences as well uh, in discussion. And then I guess like a harder one would be... um, Getting those people actually involved in the economics debate itself, and I think there is more than just like a semantic difference between these two. Oh, but absolutely. it's a, it's an interesting idea. I agree.
1: Yeah. I agree, and I'm very much on the second side. Here is why: um, economics as you, it it matters. The political economy of uh, contemporary social sciences matters uh, for this decision. And the political economy is such that economists have many more uh, access uh, and, and much more clout than other social scientists. And they, you know, it's an interesting uh, historical question how they have acquired that, that clout. But uh, bottom line is that they get to, to, to have the ears of policymakers a lot more than other social scientists and which is why it is really important to make economics as good as it possibly can. And uh, I'm, I'm I'm actually optimistic about that. I mean, I think uh, uh, the the so-called empirical turn um, is uh, not just economists uh, doing more empirical stuff. No, it's the it's the, pre- the that the prestige is more evenly distributed. Right, that the prestige no longer goes to um, uh, the just the modular. So in my previous work, that was my PhD dissertation. I studied uh, the role of game theorists in the spectrum auctions, and uh, you know I saw that um, when I when I learned
0: how
1: how the spectrum auctions were constructed in different countries and the role of game theorists. My first thought was that my God, it was an incredibly Joint uh, exercise, you know, the, the the experimentalists were absolutely crucial to it, and uh, you know, the, the the software engineers were absolutely crucial. And yet, the glory went to the game theorists, right? And you know, when the when the FT and the Wall Street Journal covered it, it's all about how game theory used to be just maths, but now finally, right? Uh, how is it? How is it that? Uh, the modulars get to appropriate the uh, credit like this. That is uh, uh, completely unhealthy. And I think that is what's changing in economics and that what fills me with optimism.
0: Maybe kind of one last question here that I was keen to ask is that, you know, we've been talking this whole time, not so much about kind of deep um, questions about philosophy of science, but really about how, Different kinds of social science are just implemented, are like done in the practice. And maybe there's a kind of, you know, standard picture of how philosophy of science is taught or what it is, which is, okay, it's more or less answering questions like, you know, what is the scientific method? And then you tell a story, you know, you start with someone like Popper, you go through Kuhn, maybe kind of Lakatosh if you're getting fancy at the end, and that's it, like case closed. And it sounds like if that's all there is to it, then it's missing something. At least that's something I would expect you to say. So can you kind of maybe speak for the value of talking about scientific norms and institutions and practice, as well as the kind of deeper questions? Do those questions belong to philosophy of science or is that more or less someone else's business?
1: Oh, what a great question, uh, Finn. I appreciate you asking it because you've probably been through that paper, right, the paper six, and you've seen how we uh, still teach it with kind of Vienna Circle, Popper, Kuhn, Lakatos, uh, and then um, some some stuff at the end. I am so deeply conflicted about it because on the one hand, I am, uh, um, I of course, take on board this Point that uh, so science is a social institution, and getting it right means fixing a social institution or reforming a social institution, and that means talking about its practices: how you know review is organized, how grants making is organized, how um, uh, peer reports are organized. You 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 have to talk about the norms and institutions. Um, On the other hand, um, the very, you know, the the heart of our discipline is in those big uh, logical questions. Do you do induction or do you do falsification or do you do a little bit of both? Do you work within a paradigm or do you try to do a revolutionary science? Um, These are the questions that have defined philosophy of science. Uh, These are the questions that have. you know, excited uh, um, our audiences for, for many, many decades. And uh, the big challenge uh, to someone like me, who believes that uh, uh, there is more to science than its logic, is to um, try and put uh, my money where my mouth is. Well, okay, redesign the course. Try if, make, make a philosophy of science more true to life. And that's a genuine challenge. Uh, I, uh, you know, I try to I try to do that in my teaching, but nowhere near. I mean, I'm still uh, intellectually a, a grandchild of these uh, um, great men, right? And I'm a, a intellectually a, grand, a daughter of a great woman, Nancy Cartwright, uh, who is my greatest influence um, in um, in philosophy of science. And yes, I think. Um, uh, scientific, there is more to science than scientific methods uh, and yet at the same time you, know, you are given uh, 8 hours to get of lecture time in, in the year to get to the young scientists and to uh, emphasize to them the importance of doing history and philosophy of science and you have to make those painful choices and you have to get them to, uh, I'm conflicted about it is what I'm saying and I don't have a good answer
0: fantastic and this doesn't need to be a question if it doesn't have to be but you know one thing you're going to end up doing as a philosopher of science is thinking and writing about science but another thing you can do is is talking to scientists and making recommendations about about scientific practice and i appreciate that the fact that you know you're doing that that seems maybe that is a question yeah should people be doing that more well,
1: the, so, again, let's try and not have that model of the, the technocrat and the policymaker, right? So let's mm. not imagine that the, there's going to be the philosopher king or the <laughs> queen that will come to scientists and tell them how to do their things better. Because if there is anything we know, and then uh, methods, certain methods work or don't work precisely because they are embedded in, in certain institutions, uh, right? So I... Uh, um yeah to to come and to to come to uh, economists and, and tell economists can you do less modeling because uh you know my ideal uh, vision of a discipline is one that spreads its methodological bet is just uh you know extremely unrealistic the economist's gonna tell me well hold on um uh, we've got this model, we are, that, you know, of how we evaluate each other's uh, contribution. You know, we need to publish a, a paper in the top five journal, and you know, we need to publish three of them to get tenure. Um, in in those journals, what what referees value mm. is, uh, you know, a, a, a really thorough and strong. Um, investment into producing such a model, and the, you know how long it takes uh, to teach uh, a young yeah. to do that. You know? <laughs> so, so what you're telling me, uh, the best thing to do is completely unrealistic, given that you know I've got a department to run, I've got a life to live, I've got a degree to organize, right? So, so those questions will be really yeah.
0: the crucial mistake. They were saying speaking at rather than talking with right which is maybe the better the better model um okay let's wrap up then um luca i don't know if you want to ask these questions i've been going on a bit but are two two final questions
2: yeah sure so i guess um happy to ask the the first one which is a question we ask all our guests and that is what is a recent thing you have changed your mind about and why
1: mm, good one everything i changed my mind on has the same structure you know there's the it, it, there is an extreme position, and I just move a little bit away from that extreme mm. position. Uh, and so, so, so examples like this uh, uh, abound. You know, uh, economic models don't explain. Used to be my view. So, good social science is one that's grounded in good philosophy uh, of you know of well-being. Again, I've moved away from that extreme because now I think. Uh, it's probably going to be, grand, has to be grounded in good politics as well as philosophy, uh, and and so on and so forth, that, that that there is no way for a numerical indicator to represent a complex value like well-being. I also think that is uh, too extreme. I think uh, depending on the situation in which we are, a numerical indicator can be perfectly good enough. So I think most of my uh, developments are usually uh, kind of uh, formulating first a very uncompromising position that I am excited about, and then uh, gently moving away from that, which is a very kind of uh, (laughs) middle-aged thing to do, isn't it? Uh, But I hope I won't just get straight in the, I won't just end up straight in the middle, but because I'm constantly looking for new extremes to formulate right i'm trying not to inherit extremes from other people
2: i think i'm definitely in like a young person's dilemma or i'm just fluctuating between like completely polar extreme positions
0: just on a day-to-day basis
1: or just enjoy it it must be, it must be fun <laughs> more than anything
0: absolutely okay very last question then is uh what three books or articles films whatever else would you recommend for anyone interested in finding out more about everything we've talked about
1: I, in general, have three big influences in, intellectually in, in my thinking. Uh, I've already mentioned uh, one, Nancy Cartwright. Uh, she, is a, she was my uh, dissertation advisor and a very important mentor for me and someone who really taught me to appreciate um, uh, and taught me not to be embarrassed of being interested in social sciences and taught me to appreciate the importance of the tangle of practice, uh, as she puts it. So anything by her, but I think my favorite book is uh, Hunting Causes and Using Them. Uh, after that, uh, my really big influence was uh, someone I uh, worked with in St. Louis, Missouri, um, while I lived there, and that's uh, Professor Dan Hebron of St. Louis University. So Dan is uh, the most exciting uh, and true-to-life uh, scholar of happiness That I know of. So his book *Pursuit of Unhappiness* is uh, uh, was a big starting point for me, and I still think that his emotional state theory of happiness is the best one there is. And then, um, as I got interested more in the 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 interplay between social science and politics, I came to um, appreciate the writings of Elizabeth Anderson. the uh, the philosopher and women's studies professor in uh, Michigan, who is constantly managing to find uh, responsible and attractive ways of uh, marrying facts and values, is how I'm going to put it. So I will send you my favorite uh, article by her
0: uh, on divorce. a fantastic list and i look forward to reading that article um alexandrova thank you so much
1: it's been a pleasure thank you for having me
0: that was anna alexandrova on well-being alternatives to technocracy and why models are overrated as always if you want to learn more you can read the write-up at hearthisidea.com forward slash episodes forward slash anna that's with two n's There you'll find links to all the books and articles Anna mentioned, along with more details and examples. As always, it would be great if you could leave an honest review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening to this. If you have constructive feedback, there's a link on the website to an anonymous feedback form. There's also a new star rating form on each write-up. And you can send suggestions, questions, hate mail, whatever else, to feedback at hearthisidea.com. We'd love to hear from you. Finally, if you would like to support the show more directly and help us to continue to pay for hosting, you can also leave a tip by following the link in the show notes. Thanks very much for listening.